Welcome to this program of the Aquila Report in Weekly Review, the weekly podcast of the Aquila Report, where we come with you with the top 10 articles that appeared on the Aquila Report last week. And today is uh, June 5, 2023. And on tomorrow, June 6, the newsletter will be printed and sent out. And uh, you will be hyperlinked with all the 10 articles that uh, Paul Harold and I, Dominic Aquila, will be presenting today, give you a little tease as to what's to come. And again, as I like to say, if you're listening to this afterwards, hopefully you will interact with us. And more importantly, that uh, you will give thoughts to what the articles are, what your fellow readers have uh, claimed in, in these various levels of one through 10, as well as hopefully using it with uh, your small groups and uh, one-to-one encounters with people. Because I think that uh, this helps to, you know, uh, deepen our understanding of what's taking place. So there's a wide variety of articles each week, but this week we have that for sure. And so we're, um, uh, looking forward to this discussion. And so, Paul, uh, this is our weekly opportunity to uh, give a little peek into what the top 10 are that the Aquila Report readers have uh, chosen. And uh, I, I'm going to uh, sort of give away the store a little bit, uh, lift the curtain, peek behind the curtain. And uh, number one is uh, something that uh, you have been, uh, let's say, gently here railing against uh, for the last three or four years. And so you, this article sort of justifies a lot of what you've been saying. Uh, and I think quite a few things that the Equal Report has been reporting on as well. But uh, you have uh, been the consistent voice in uh, dealing with the COVID matter. But I don't want to give the way, away the store at this point, you know. Okay. Well, I, you know, I'll just start with number 10 and then we'll we'll let you take it away with number one. Here Absolutely. Okay. So. Number 10 for last week, we've got Tom Hervey back on the list. Thoughts on the church's true nature and mission, a partial rejoiner to Larry Ball's challenge to the spirituality of the church. Uh, mouthful there. Uh, number nine, Michael Clary r- just writing a piece on contextualization. Uh, number eight, we have uh, Akos Baloff. Uh, as a Christian, I went down the AI rabbit hole. Here are 12 things I discovered. Number seven, Jim Eggert writing second thoughts about the proposed witness overtures. Of course, General Assembly coming up next week. And then number six, Brad Isbell writing PCA officers and their pronouns. Okay, well, then number five is PCA post-Memphis, revive or divide by Brett Foster. Uh, number four, thoughts on the ARP, that's the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, Special Committee on Women Deacons Study by Andy Webb. Number three is uh, by, uh, uh, the, let's see, what's his name? Uh, Kurt, uh, Denny Burke on um, uh, Rick Warren. And uh, does he really know what he is doing? And he says he knows exactly what he's doing. Number two is one by Matt Lee, who's our sort of resident statistician. Final tally from PCA Presbyteries on Overture 15. And then number one is our friend from many years ago, COVID-19 Reflections. So uh, enough time has passed to begin the reflection process. It's already happening in sort of the secular press and people looking under the covers to see what took place. And um, so here is a more of a, like an op-ed piece and reflection of a pastor, Peter Van uh, Dudeward, and he uh, is asking questions and making some comments about uh, it's good to do an after-action report. Actions of mass and significance call for significant accountability, uh, we read in this piece. Self-reflection is a good spiritual discipline also for church leaders. Did we engage in spiritual abuse when we turned away faithful worshipers? Uh, Were we condescending toward mask-wearing seekers to uh, protect vulnerable family members? Did we demand submission to civil government on matters better left to individual conscience? I, for one, am still bothered by the restrictions we uh, we did place on our congregation. 
And couldn't we simply let sincere Christians make up their own minds on timing and masks and everything else? Uh, did the Lord, did we lord it over the flock? Did we succumb to fear? So that's quite a mouthful. And in this reflection of uh, COVID-19, looking back as a pastor of the church and all the things that happened, uh, you can think through what took place in your your setting, both in uh, the church as well as the workplace, uh, what was really taking, um, uh, what was happening with COVID-19 and uh, with such a serious uh, action as uh, basically closing down our economy and uh, causing people to shelter in place and uh, making a distinction between essential and non-essential non-essential um, areas of life uh, and what effect it all had. Uh, the So here in this, Pastor uh, Duda Ward uh, says, a common argument presented for such restrictions was the following. The state requires compliance and we are to, quote, fear God and honor the king, close quote. But this basic argument, especially in Western constitutional democracies, needs to be reexamined. And so then he gives some explanations on that, gives some uh, examples as well. He also talked about it with reference to a second and very common argument was that those in favor of restrictions, masks and vaccines were those who truly understood what it meant to love your neighbors. Neighborly love motivated many Christians, those who were prone to be upset with mask wearers uh, or friends stayed away for a time out of concern for elderly church family members ought to uh, see love in those who took extra care. But the love your neighbor argument also has profound weaknesses when we attempt to apply uniformly to the whole church. And he gives explanation on that. And then he, uh, we returned again to what uh, Justice Gorsuch recently said. Many lessons can be learned from the this chapter in our history, and hopefully serious efforts will be made to study it. One lesson might be this. Uh, fear and the desire for safety are powerful forces. Uh, that So he takes up the whole matter of fear. And then the concluding questions, uh, which I've already uh, read as part of the intro for this, did we engage in spiritual abuse when we turned away faithful worshipers? Were we condescending towards mask wearers seeking to protect vulnerable family members? Did we demand submission to the civil government on matters better left to individual conscience? I, for one, am bothered by the restrictions that we did not did place on our own congregation. He's referring to his congregation, not the we in the uh, plural, plural sense. Uh, couldn't we have simply let uh, sincere Christians make up their own minds on timing and mask, uh, mask and wear and everything else? Did the Lord, did we lord it over the flock? Did we succumb to fear? So uh, he's saying, let's take the time to do as he is uh, reflecting, because this is probably a summary of more of the reflection that uh, Pastor uh, Peter Duward has uh, given to it. Uh, so, Paul, uh, the, this is a very helpful article to help because it's very even keeled, shows on both sides uh, about, you know, what, what can we learn? Let's make sure that if something happens comparable to this again, uh, that we may follow a different path than the one that we did choose because we're realizing now that it wasn't the, the best and the wisest way to go. So your thoughts on that yeah you know i mean uh we know we know a lot of things uh now or a lot of people know a lot of things now that they didn't know then uh you know i would venture to say if something like this were to happen again it would probably be something that would scare people even more it would be you know even more difficult to not make the same mistake twice i think we we can evaluate you know how we interpret information you know you hear that the the media lies and uh, that's true you know i i've covered that you know my entire career in the media exposing media lies i was pretty confident that they were they were lying about a lot of stuff uh you know back in the at the time of it you had you know hospitals shown overcrowded in new york city come to find out that wasn't uh new york city hospital it was one in italy i was like well i know enough to know about the media that that wasn't a mistake that that's <laughs> You don't make that kind of mistake when, uh, you know, I accidentally put the wrong hospital that that looks worse and, and is designed to, to stoke fear and and everything else. And so I think a lot of people, uh, you know, had to wake up to the idea that just because, you know, you have an M.D. at the end of your name or 
or you you somehow are 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 working at some neutral uh, government organization that's there for the public safety that it's not really that neutral at all and that neutrality in fact is a myth uh, the good news is from an ecclesiastical standpoint Dominic is that you know we have uh, a relationship with the God of the universe and he's given us his word and he's given us uh, the, uh, the the methods by which we worship him and 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 how we're supposed to do that and um, and that's what we have to cling to especially in times where the world around us is losing their minds or it seems like they're you know running around like a chicken with their head cut off afraid right well we as the as the church uh we have the uh you know we have the uh, the the answers to fear that that we weren't given a spirit of fear that's not what the lord gives us and so i like an article like this we have to continue to you know reflect on what happened and yes we have to make sure it never happens again uh, and I think, Paul, if, uh, with your uh, if there, and I and I raised it, I was going to raise it anyway. Um, if if uh, something like this were to happen again, especially in the near you know future, uh, you, you know, I think this time the church is wiser. And the thing that we need to do there, and you just referred to, we have the word, which of course points us to the Lord who's sovereign over all things, and He guides the uh, His whole you know, uh, his will and agenda. And that's where the church ought to be looking uh, that, you know, the, we, we probably need to go back and the church should do this as part of their after action work is look at the quarantine uh, passages that we find in uh, God's law uh, and see not the practice of it in its particular, but in terms of its principle, uh, you know, what were the principles that God gave that led to those quarantine laws? Not don't get, don't get lost in the technicality of, the application in Old Testament Israel, uh, but the principle that's behind what those quarantine laws said. And so when there was an issue, it uh, you didn't lock down the whole culture. You didn't close down the whole tribe uh, there where there were problems. You, uh, you found out who was having whatever problem and you isolated them and you quarantined them. And, mm-hmm. and that's how you did. So there are a lot of things that we probably need, the church needs to go back and say, hey, you know, there's some wisdom here. And we probably need to find out uh, and have it at the ready so that we are able to assist and give uh, yeah. clarity to to the culture. Well, and, you know, the last thing I'll say about this is the Western constitutional democracies. Uh, you know, uh, we need to the, the Romans 13 argument was thrown around a lot. And, you know, in the context of, uh, you know, Western style democracies, um, I think that does need to be reexamined um, in terms of a lot of uh, how a lot of people were using Romans 13, um, you know, because a lot of the stuff that the governments were doing and you can see John MacArthur in California what was illegal uh what they were trying to do john, to john macarthur's church in uh, in california the, the 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 californian state government and county government in my opinion were the ones that were actually in violation of romans 13 because they were trying to do something they had no authority to do and uh john macarthur won in court and those two governments the state of california and the county in which the church is had to pay uh you know had to pay the church for damages so you know, this this was uh, this is something else we have to realize, you know, in the context of, you know, what's the law of the land? Well, it's the law of the land is written law, the Constitution. And when these you know governors try to do something that is blat- they don't have the power to do, they're in violation of the social contract. They're in actual violation of the law, uh, not uh, those of us who are saying, wait a second, we, we have a right to meet. It says right here that you can't make a law, you know, prohibiting the free exercise of religion. Yeah. Uh, exactly. So anyway, that's a that's another thing to put in the reflection. So use this as a template for discussion. And now that the time has passed, hopefully, uh, you know, a, a good one. We don't we don't want to stir the pot and get people um, angry about anything because that won't help anything. Now's the time for good conscience, rational, reasonable discussion. OK, so that's number one uh, reflections on COVID-19, a very helpful article. Number two is another reflection, this time in a statistical sense, final tally from PCA Presbyteries on Overture 15. If you'll recall, if you've been following and tracking things in the Presbyterian Church in America, that there were a number of overtures dealing with the uh, outflow of and the um, response to Revoice, uh, which was dealing with the question of how 
do we handle and how does the church respond to um, the, the whole issue of biblical sexual uh, human sexuality? And Overture 15 was an amendment to be added to BCO, that's Book of Church Order 7, uh, and it would be the fourth, a new fourth paragraph that would give qualifications for uh, who would be able to serve as a church officer. So the focus was on church office, not just on general population and membership. And uh, so it uh, basically argued that uh, the that there are certain you know qualifications that uh, in the area of uh, uh, beyond reproach and purity and in, in uh, terms of sexuality. Anyway, that uh, overture uh, did not pass. The other two did. There were a total of three that were on the ballot, and the presbyteries had to had to vote on it. Uh, enough presbyteries voted on the first two. But Overture 15 did not pass. And uh, this coming General Assembly, which begins next week in Memphis, uh, beginning Mar next June, uh, next uh, 12, 12 through 16, uh, there will be some others that are still attempting to sort of deal with what Overture 15 did. But uh, here is Matt Lee, who's ruling elder and a statistician on the uh, session of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And he did comparisons of what Presbyterians voted for and against ver uh, this year versus how they voted last year, because we had two amendments also on the uh, before the uh, the Presbyterians last year. And he did some comparisons, and then also a couple of other kinds of comparisons. I won't bore you now with the details. It's because this is one of those things that when you get numbers, you sort of have to read it. But uh, really excellent comparing, uh, you know, what uh, press studies did. But he starts out with a um, notion that the um, the that the Presbyterian Church is still not quite the PCA is not quite aware yet on how it's going to approach this. With the he starts out with the Presbyterian Church in America 2023 General Assembly quickly approaches. Thought I'd uh, find. One, take one final look at the Presbyterian votes on Overture 15. And total, 81 Presbyterians have voted. We have 88 uh, total, uh, have recorded the Overture 15 vote with the Overture receiving a majority with, with 48, but not the uh, needed um, 57. So it was 11 shy of what it needed. Uh, so what it says is it shows that we still have a, you know, divided church. So when the um concluding remarks um overtures he talks about the overtures that are coming uh up and uh, they still are scattered around in terms of how to put the wording together uh we'll have another article that will talk about uh how how we allow meaning to get in, in the way of things so very helpful article i can see what's number two the uh, because uh, even though it is, you know, technical, it does give concrete numbers. So instead of just saying many or uh, it looks like everybody or nobody, you know, now we have good numbers and it's a helpful article to see where the um, PCA is uh, with regard to uh, the language that will be used that will eventually wind up in the BCL. And so, Paul, I think, uh, you know, it and normally I glaze over with numbers, but Matt always, Matt Lee always makes it uh, uh, simple to comprehend. Yeah, yeah, I mean, <laughs> and this is really interesting to just look at the, the uh, you know, the several years or a couple of years here, uh, ever, ever since this uh, revoice issue has been, the, the attempt has been made to address it, uh, and, you know, what are we going to do about it? Um, so there's been a several overtures uh, that have, you know, people worked on, and some that have made it to the General Assembly, some that haven't. And uh, um, so you've got to get to that two thirds. So what was the final count? I mean, I, I, we know Overture 15, which, you know, was my preferred, more direct approach, did not. Uh, no, the prevail. other two were were Overtures 29 and Overture 31. And both of those uh, passed with uh, about, uh, I think, 31 with about 95 percent of the Presbyteries voting in favor and uh, uh, 29 with about 97, 98. So it was way, way, uh, almost unanimous. <clears throat> so now we'll just come to this General Assembly that you 
it's approved by the first general assembly it's sent down to the presbyteries they vote if you get two-thirds of the presbyteries then you the one more general assembly votes uh, so it'll they'll they'll be approved uh, next week at the general assembly so that's how they, they would all work. right okay well uh so that was some things in the Presbyterian Church in America. Now we turn to the Southern Baptist Convention, largest Protestant denomination in our country. And the um, Rick, this is by um, Denny Burke. Uh, Rick Warren knows exactly what he's doing. And what he's referring to is uh, some dust up between uh, the, the uh, Saddleback Church, which uh, a lot of folks don't know it was a part of the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, and it says the Southern Baptist Convention announced earlier this year that Saddleback Church had been removed from the SBC over Saddleback's calling uh, female pastors. And that was a very uh, public matter. It was shown on their website and they uh, showed the service in which these uh, three women were being ordained and set apart as pastors in the church. Uh, so the uh, Southern Baptist Convention says that women are still not allowed to uh, be ordained as pastors in the church in the uh, in the Southern Baptist Convention. So he says just yesterday the news broke, and this is just about a week ago, uh, that Saddleback has appealed that decision of being dis, uh, dis in fellowship. Uh, that decision, which means that the matter will come before the messengers, that's the uh, delegates to the uh, Southern Baptist Convention at the annual meeting in June, and uh, they'll be meeting in New Orleans. And he's, uh, uh, Rick Warren then cites uh, at least five reasons for his appeal, uh, and they're listed for us here. We won't bore you with them because you can read them, but he basically claims we're challenging the ruling on behalf of millions of uh, Southern Baptist women uh, who are forced to sit in the bench, uh, cannot participate in the Great Commission, and he answers that. Uh, he says, uh, Warren then says that he's challenging rules not for his own church, but for over 300 concerned pastors who are female uh, pastors serving on their staff already. And he wants to make it clear that that's okay. Uh, third, that the uh, Baptist uh, Foundation message uh, their basic uh, belief statement teaching about qualified male pastors has caused our missionary force to decline over the last 20 years. And uh, Denny Burke takes challenge with that and says that's just not the case. Uh, fourth, that uh, he says that we believe the decision is critical to the Southern Baptist's uh, identity and future uh, should be decided by the messengers, not by committee. So that's coming up before them. And then fifth, uh, our goal is to spark the thinking of messengers regarding the direction of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, regardless of the outcome of the vote. So uh, in this, Denny uh, Burke then gives his assessment. And when he says he that uh, that he knows exactly what Rick Warren is doing, he's not being idle about this. So he says Rick Warren and Saddleback have done us the service of showing their hand. They adopted a faith and practice that are directly at odds with the BFNM, that's the uh, Bible and faith and message of the uh, their doctrinal statement. Instead of walking away amicably and without rancor, they have decided to introduce division and controversy into our convention. They want to persuade us to abandon what the Bible teaches on these things and follow them in another direction. So how will we respond in New Orleans? I'm not a prophet or son of a prophet, but I suspect the Southern Baptist Convention uh, the Baptists are prepared to take their stand with the Bible. I know I am, and I'm hoping and praying that my fellow messengers will too. So it'll be interesting to observe this and their meeting here in a few weeks, just as the, uh, in fact, this the time that most uh, denominations meet in the summer. So we'll have a report on that quite soon. Uh, so that's coming before the Southern Baptist. So it shows that, uh, that churches of all stripes um, wrestle with these uh, issues, Paul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and this this ending here uh, that you mentioned, instead of walking away amicably without rancor, they've decided to introduce division and controversy into our convention. Uh, they've adopted a faith and practice that directly that's directly at odds with the Baptist faith and message. You know, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Um, but this again is, you know, is definitely, uh, you know, the one of the first steps that 
you know, gets you to Christian liberalism, if you want to call it Christian, you know, just the liberalism, we're just going to ignore that part of Scripture because we don't like it, because the culture doesn't like it. Um, we, when you start that down that path, it, it leads to a lot of other uh, questions about Scripture. So uh, this is just another example of that. Okay, well, uh, we've shown that the PCA is wrestling with things, the Southern Baptist Convention. Now we can say, well, here's an article uh, by Andy Webb on the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, Associate Reformed Presbyterian, or ARP. Uh, they had a special committee that will be reporting at their synod, which is their highest uh, uh, ecclesiastical uh, meeting place, uh, on women deacon studies, and a number of oh, probably 50, 60 years ago, the ARP amended their book of order to allow for women to be elected as deacons. Uh, the church's internal um, theological position and biblical position uh, has changed uh, and become more conservative or biblical over that period of time from when it, where it was 60, 70 years ago. And so now there's the move to say maybe that was not a considered a well considered move and we should now uh as arp remove um that from the, our book and the women shouldn't be allowed to be elected as uh deacons because in its ecclesiastical office and ordained and we'll have another article on that dealing with the concept of uh ordination and the authority that goes with it so uh in this uh article andy webb is talking uh presenting the, what's coming up how it's coming up and he's concerned that the report is a little bit too trying to slice it too thinly. So he's recommending some other possibilities uh, that than what the committee has uh, presenting. So we'll see how that works out because they, uh, the ARP will be meeting here within a few weeks as well. And uh, so what he says is what I propose is that our that our currently ordained deaconesses be grandmothered instead of grandfathered, of course, and that we stop ordaining deaconesses as of January 2025. And this solution is similar to the one that reformed missionaries exercise on the mission field with dealing with uh, polygamous marriages. Uh, and what they found out, of course, in the on the mission field where the polygamy was practiced regularly in tribes, that they would not uh, could that while the church then coming in and Christianity coming in and emphasizing uh, marriage between one man, one woman, polygamy wasn't recognizing, but the church accommodated the fact that they, the converts to Christianity who already were in polygamous marriages realized that forcing men uh, married to multiple women to divorce all their wives, but uh, one would have a catastrophic effect on the women and the children uh, who would simply be without provision, often with little or no prospect for remarriage or employment just because of the rules and the uh, culture that out of which they came. And so they allowed those existing in polygamous marriages to remain uh, intact. But uh, after that, everyone would uh, just be married one man, one woman. So maybe that might be a proposition, but the ARP will be dealing with that along with other issues in their uh, denomination. So we'll watch that one as well. So am I to understand this, Dominic, that they are they the ARP has female deacons and now they're proposing to to do away with that and they don't Correct. want female deacons. Okay. Well, so I stand corrected that the, I mean this is one this is one giant step up the slippery slope, not down it. Exactly. Is that, yeah. Is that, is this that, has that, been happening always yes, right. It's been happening internally so that uh, churches, individual churches in the ARP have been self-correcting anyway. So there aren't that many uh, churches that are still continuing to elect women as uh, deacons. And uh, but now they but it's still in the book. And so they want to bring what's in their book of order into compliance with where they direct the shift in the direction that the uh, church has taken, the denomination has taken. Well, so, that's good, good news. Yes, it is. <clears throat> so. All right. Well, then number. Five is by Brett Foster, who's a ruling elder in uh, the Westminster uh, PCA in uh, Tallahassee, Florida. Uh, he writes, PCA post-Memphis. What's it going to look like? It sees either revive or divide. 
Uh, student commissioners will be heading to Memphis in the Presbyterian Church in America for the 50th General Assembly, which, by the way, just in case none, none of the other articles mentioned that, uh, that this is the uh, Golden Jubilee, uh, the 50th year, uh, having begun in December of 1973. And so we come to that 50th year celebration. So where are we? And he's taking stock of that. And and again, it's a, you know, you have those markers along the way that uh, churches, individuals will say, okay, what has happened up to this point? Uh, what kind of route did I go? What can I learn? Again, that reflection is good. So he says, as a denomination, we need to worry exclusively about the second fear outlined in the preamble of, to the reports, talking about the uh, human sexuality report, and commit ourselves to a, a bold witness in the apostolic model. Uh, that, uh, that means that no nuance, no hand-wringing, no compromise. Our book of church order needs to be included as a standard for our officers, included as standard for our officers that is clear testimony against today's prevalent licentiousness and make no provision for toleration of you know, side A or side B homosexuality among our officers. So <clears throat> that's the focus in wondering, will these uh, new overtures that are coming uh, that still basically to replace over some wording that will replace what overture 15 was, but they'll probably sound different, have a different order of words and whatnot. And that's going to be before the uh, General Assembly, as we've already said. And so the this article is just asking, uh, will we either revive uh, sort of after 50 years of existence and sort of get a get a fresh break, be refreshed and go forward faithfully? Or will we still wrestle with um, the nuance of languages and um, buy into you know what the culture is pressured or perceived pressures of the culture yeah you know what's interesting is you know i i i hope that the uh just the increase the acceleration i mean this all started in 2018 right Correct. and and <clears throat> i mean you know it, it's just been five years and and look look where we are look what the culture is doing now you know look look how much further it's accelerated in its depravity uh now you know and so i i would hope that that you know wakes people up you know people that maybe wanted to sacrifice biblical truth um you know in order to get a seat of relevancy at the cultural table surely with what you know people are proposing doing to children right now and puberty blocking hormones and that sort of thing surely that will be a wake-up call to a lot of people. That that well, is my it, hope. That is my well, hope. yeah. And remember, uh, Paul, in the last few weeks, the uh, within the top ten, we have articles both from the uh, broader Anglican Communion uh, and also in the United Methodist uh, Communion. Both of those, you know, they're the two of the um, largest uh, worldwide denominations because they really do have a worldwide experience. So. It's not just what's happening here in the U.S., it's what's taking place in that whole worldwide communion of these two large uh, uh, universal denominations. And the issue of, um, you know, human sexuality is at the core of, of this. And that probably is, I think I even mentioned it in one of our podcasts, is the one issue that has divided, you know, the, the church more than any other. Because I think intuitive people know that men are men, women are women, that there's male and female. God ordained um, that uh, there be one man for one woman and that the being fruitful and multiply was in the context of uh, covenant marriage, in the context of, of, of the, um, the, the uh, one man, one woman um, basis. So, you know, the, 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 anything outside of that then is anomaly is sin it's wrong it's a perversion it's a recreating something god didn't create and so people know that and it, it's a point for division so the um what we have with what brett foster here brings is you know pca after 50 years we probably should be a little wiser uh we've lived through a lot of life uh we've had uh, cultures gone through upheaval we're going through upheaval now it's time to uh, focus on the main thing being the main thing. So, you know, we'll see. 
Okay, number six brings us back to that question that I was hinting at. Uh, this is by Brett uh, Isbell, Brad Isbell, uh, PCA officers and their pronouns. And this is warranted, but if the Southern Baptist Convention already have it within their um, uh, statement of faith that women are not to be ordained as pastors, and uh, we, we have it within the PCA's Book of Church order that women are not to be ordained as pastors, elders, or deacons. And so there are some churches that have uh, within the PCA that believe that women should be able to be in the office of deacon. They don't see it as an office of authority that needs to be ordained. And so they, what they've said is they're going to withhold uh, ordaining both men and women and just have um, a board of deacon deacons that, uh, but they're not uh, ordained in any way until the church wakes up and realizes how what they're thinking is correct. So he starts out dozens of congregations in the Presbyterian Church in America communicate to the church and uh, do the and uh, to communicate to the church and to the world that ordination is not essential for the holding of church office uh, or to bearing the titles thereof. So a pastor, minister, uh, elder, as well as deacon. Uh, the two office polity, that is the church government of the PCA, is simple and clear. It is on the uh, on the ground manifestation is too often confused and confusing. So the confusion is apparent uh, at least two ways. First, dozens of PCA churches list, portray, or refer to women as deacons, uh, not the sexed um, informal term deaconess, or as members of the diaconate. And he gives a representation from one uh, church website. The problem here is that uh, every reference in the Book of Church order, the BCO, uh, to deacons refers to an ordained office. An ordained office in the PCA is limited to men. Furthermore, the diaconate is only mentioned in conjunction with the session, that is the Board of Elders, of ordained elders, saying there, uh, uh, saying there uh, and, uh, are ordained members of diaconate uh, uh, deacons would seem to imply that there would be an unordained members of the session, and that, of course, would never be. So the ordination, it's all bound up together with those two offices, elder and deacon. So uh, <clears throat> then he goes on to say well, at least one church in the PCA has a female, quote, pastor, and he gives a picture of that in this article. Uh, one could only uh, put it this way. One church has a female pastor since you can't actually have an impossibility. Pastors are ordained and no one in the PCA ordains women, but apparently a PCA church can assign the title of pastor to someone who is not and cannot be pastor. And that would be, of course, according to the rules. So the point is they, the now he's talking about titles and that's the reason he begins the, the article PCA offices and their pronouns terms of what they're pointing to. So titles seem to matter even more in uh, cr credentialistic days. They obviously matter to, uh, matter to the givers of the titles and to those who receive them. Others, why uh, go to all the trouble? Um, uh, but uh, does the actual meaning and the definition of the title matter, matter in an ecclesial denominational context? Postmodernist uh, modern deconstruction questions the meaning of words, that is, uh, titles are, that are words, but also the meaning and understanding of texts, even of the text so dry and technical as the BCO. So postmodern deconstruction tries to find the meaning behind the glossary definition or might uh, dwell on what the word and phrase should or could mean using critical methods. But he says the PCA book is actually quite clear about ecclesial office and titles and definitions. Every instance of the words pastor or minister refer to the ordained office of elder. Every instance of the word deacon and diaconate refer to and only to the ordained office. The correspondence between the sign, that is the title, and the thing signified is clear. An ordination is never divorced from office. They're tied together. 
So in this article, he proceeds in that way. So he says, so uh, what are we to, um, uh, you know, to do? Well, he says there's an a uh, over there's an overture that's coming before the General Assembly uh, this year that would clarify the PCA's order, emphasizing the plain meaning of the Book of Church order rather than attempting to change it. Overture 26 comes from Northwest Georgia Presbytery, and it reads, no one who holds uh, office in the church ought to usurp authority therein or receive official titles of spiritual preeminence except such as are employed in scripture. Furthermore, unordained people should not be referred to or uh, to as or given the titles connected to the ecclesial office of pastor, elder, or deacon. So they, that's coming to answer that question to if there's any doubt. So there's no nuancing, uh, no postmodern reconstruction of uh, meaning. Uh, it says, let the book church order say what it means that the, off, the titles of office go along with those that are ordained to those offices. So, Paul, this is uh, uh, going along with some of the wrestling that the Southern Baptist Convention is going through, as well as the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. We saw Andy yeah. Webb's article, and here it is, the PCA trying to uh, refine it because there are people who are trying to uh, chip away at it from the fringes and the outside. Yeah, yeah. I like the my favorite part of this article. Is, uh, he writes that some sessions by positive action or that some presbyteries by the tacit approval of inaction seem to approve of the deconstruction of office and ordination of the PCA is troubling enough. Possibly more troubling is what all this implies about the modern church's ability to deal with the intersectional queering of everything, assault on pronouns and the supposed lettered multiplication of genders, including the big T transgenderism. Words matter very much to the LGBTQIA plus crowd, even though their meanings seem to change daily. Just use the wrong one and find out. Words, including titles, ought to matter all the more to Presbyterians, since we believe that the words of our standards represent fixed biblical truths about the church and her Christ-given offices. And all of the bearers of those offices have vowed that they agree to follow the church's standards. That right there was my favorite uh, uh, paragraph in this piece by Brad Isbell. Well, so that we'll see how the General Assembly acts on the Overture 26 from Northwest uh, Presbytery to clarify that the use of a title uh, goes along with its connection to the ordained office that it's attached to. So that's uh, Brad Isbell's article. Trust that you'll be encouragement, especially if you're a commissioner to General Assembly next week. Okay, the another overture that's coming before the PCA General Assembly is um, a proposed overture to uh, amend BCO 35.1 with regard to who can be serve as a witness in ecclesiastical cases when the court has to, the uh, whether it's a session or a presbytery or General Assembly has to uh, conduct a, a judicial process of trial. Um, or confront someone with any particular sin, uh, who can actually uh, come and serve as a witness? And this is by uh, Jim Eggert, uh, ruling elder at the Westminster Presbyterian Church in Brandon, Florida, just outside of Tampa. Um, he says two overtures and the uh, 2023 PCA General Assembly uh, pertain to what can be uh, be a witness to uh, ecclesia who can be a witness. Changes are proposed both 30, BCO 35.1 and 35.7. Okay, the current 35.1, just to read, I'll just read the part of it. Uh, all persons of proper age and intelligence are competent witnesses, except that they do not, uh, those who uh, accept such as do not believe in the existence of God or future state of rewards and punishment. Okay, that's the uh, part that's being uh, in these overtures being uh, possibly uh, or suggested that it be removed. Uh, so what he goes on, there's the, the other one about the same thing deals with the oath and what oath is given, whether you take a firm, uh, I mean, state that uh, you believe in God or just affirm that there is a true living being. So he says the proposed changes would remove belief in God and belief in heaven and hell as theological precondition uh, for witness eligibility. 
in the PCA, which now exists in the book as it is, the new rule would presume that any and every person is eligible to testify in our ecclesiastical proceedings to only relevant considerations being that the person's credibility. Such a witness's belief in uh, God or a future state, it is proposed, is merely, quote, a factor in judging the reliability of trustworthiness of the witness testimony, not a precondition. At first blush, that may seem like a reasonable change. After all, isn't witness credibility the most relevant consideration? We uh, should assume that the judges of our church courts are wise and competent to sort out truth from falsehood and assign the degree of credibility to any witness's testimony that is appropriate under all the circumstances, whether the witness is a believer or not. So why should we refuse to hear someone at all just because he doesn't, quote, believe in the existence of God or in heaven and hell? And then Jim Eggert goes on to explain the importance uh, for the ecclesial, that is the church court, in terms of how this works out. And so it's a very uh, well-written, argued uh, matter, and I won't go into all the details, probably a little too confused just to read it. So really urge that when when the newsletter comes out tomorrow, that this be one that you look at. It will be before the General Assembly. Uh, being considered uh, to as, by the overtures committee as to what to bring to the whole uh, general assembly. This, this so, will be interesting. Uh, yes, it and, will be. And so uh, Jim Eggert here is arguing against this change, correct? Yes, he's arguing against the change, right? Yeah. Right. So uh, the, just at the very end, he says uh, ecclesial cases are fundamentally intramural. Let's be within the church, uh, within proceedings brought in and for the church. The proposed uh, changes seek to expand the jurisdiction of our ecclesiastical courts into an area under the framework of our historic polity has been the province of the civil magistrates, expanding the jurisdiction of our ecclesiastical courts by accepting unbelievers as witnesses would undermine the principle that our church's court's authority is solely moral and spiritual, not civil. And by the way, those words come right out of the preliminary principles of the Book of Church Order. Uh, You can read those uh, for yourself. We should defer uh, to the civil magistrate adjudication for those matters that are especially suited to his jurisdictional powers in matters that turn on the testimony of persons who are neither Christian nor otherwise subject to the discipline of the church. So uh, commend uh, Jim Eggert's article to you on whether or not to change um, and um, the General Assembly should amend uh, BCO 35.1 and 35.7. Okay, number uh, eight uh, brings us into a different way that, uh, <laughs> Paul, I have to confess as I read this, uh, here's the title, As a Christian, uh, this is by uh, Akash Bailoff. I went down the AI, that's the, um, um, the what do you call it? artificial artificial intelligence. intelligence. My mind just went blank. Artificial intelligence rabbit hole. Okay. Uh, here are the twelve here are twelve things I discovered. So he immersed himself. He says uh, in these things over the last few weeks. He said I've taken a deep dive down the AI that is the artificial intelligence rabbit hole, listening to podcasts, reading books, taking courses, and testing it myself. And let me say, it's been a roller coaster ride of emotions from dread at how this AI might eventually take our jobs and possibly even our freedom to optimism of what AI could do for us. So he sees the yay and the nay and the the dark and the light. And so he provides 12 things, things like uh, artificial intelligence like nuclear energy. It's both promising and it's dangerous. Or number two, technological change isn't addictive it's transformative uh three he says the christian view of humanity will impact how we approach ai and new technology so notice he puts the qualifier the christian view of humanity so the world's not going to see what they're doing in the same way as christians with their biblical lens as they look at these kinds of things uh, ai is not ethically neutral Paul, you already used the word uh, neutral once and already with one other course uh, thing, but it's furnished with the ethics of its designers. 
And this is probably the area when I read this, I just stopped and paused and said, whoa, that's exactly true. Because remember, artificial, it is artificial. It means it is humanly produced. And so the human can put into whatever the uh, intelligence, whatever the, uh, the machine is, whatever he wants to do it with his presuppositions, his worldview. So it's not going to be neutral. It's going to have some position. And that's one of the things that Christians for centuries have argued that no uh, fact is absolutely neutral in itself because it's seen through a lens and interpreted and defined. And that's basically why we have the biblical or Christian worldview and the non-Christian worldview because we look at facts a little bit differently. So this one is important that it's not neutral. He also found as he went down this rabbit hole that AI can and will cause dislocation before it gets to Skynet if it ever does and so forth. So anyway, it goes on like this. Remember there are 12 of them uh, that he learned over and probably more, but it, these are the 12 he gives us that something for us to really consider as to where we're going into this brave new world. So, uh, Paul, what are you hoping that AI will bring into your life? Well, I don't know if people remember the old college football system uh, where they would have the computer. Um, you know, well, the computer ranks these people as that. Well, the computer, well, the computer was programmed by somebody, right? I mean, the computer, <laughs> somebody is programming the parameters uh, by which, you know, it's supposed to judge the different variables that some by human. This part about being eth ethic, um, ethically neutral uh, is very dangerous, in my opinion, um, because, again, you know, we talked about earlier, you mentioned that neutrality is actually a myth. There's a lot of people that are afraid of AI. They think it's demonic uh, they, or they say they think it could certainly be used uh, as a demonic tool. And if you if you know that it's programmed by humans and we know that the human heart is hostile towards God, um, you know, the more and more we get dependent on these AIs and we ask them questions and get answers from them and all, all sorts of things. I mean, these, these, uh, AIs are capable of, of answering very detailed questions. Um, you know, astrology or tarot cards don't even come close to what this could come, what this could do, uh, and the influence it could have over people. Uh, you know, this combined with the metaverse that they're trying to, you know, launch and get people to just live digital lives, which sounds crazy, but it, it in fact is is part of the goal here. I mean, what what this is, I know the article doesn't mention this. OK, so this is just me on the soapbox. But transhumanism is a big deal. The union of biology, technology, nanotech, it's all something that we're going to have to deal with. The church is going to have to deal with, uh, you know, what does that do to humanity? What is that? Uh, what does that do to how we live the Christian life? And it's going to be a fundamental question. It's going to have to be answered ecclesiastically, uh, you know, at some point in the near future. Uh, what do we do with this technology? Is it actually a good thing? Um, and and I, with anything, it can be perverted for evil. But this is this is something that, you know, one of those things, you know, we, we woke up one day and everybody's got their heads and their cell phones. Right. And and that happened overnight. Um this is something we could wake up and everybody's got their AI and they're using it to get all of their advice for how to live. Right. Well, life. here's the difference now, because there will be, uh, this is not a replay of Genesis 2-7, uh, where God fashioned man from the dirt. You know, he's made of the constituent nature of creation. That is the dirt, uh, the dust of the ground. And God shaped man. So his body, you know, there was his physical body, but there was, it was just lifeless. Until God breathed into the spirit of God, then breathed into his nostrils of breath of life, and then he became a living entity. But that wasn't artificial intelligence. It was spiritualized intelligence Amen. coming from God. Okay, So there, the difference between uh, this is that you can know facts. And so AI, even now, you can just say, Siri, you know, what's this and what's that? And we'll get an answer fairly quickly. And so we're hardly reading books anymore or going to the encyclopedia for answers. So it's immediately available. But giving those facts do not, does not tell us how they apply. And that's where wisdom comes in. And only the one with the suke, that is the heart, the center of focus that only God gives to the divine in breathing. So every human being, whether Christian or not, is stamped with the image of God and is able to think. Uh, and process things uh, the, where AI is going to get into a problem is when we begin to say, 
that it's smarter than us. It has more intelligence. It doesn't have intelligence. It has more facts. It's a difference of uh, going to, you know, being on Jeopardy and answering the questions that are asked. And people think, well, that person's smart. No, they just have uh, could retained a lot of knowledge, just factual data. But in terms of how does it apply, that is going to be a totally different thing. So uh, it's, but it's still something that we're everything that uh, uh, Bykoff says here uh, is something that we need to just be concerned about because sometimes we don't make that distinction that we really need to make as human beings uh, on this. So. Uh, very uh, helpful article there. Uh, when you get it, uh, you can tease each other with it. Now, moving, and here, the next article, number nine, is just one word, contextualization. Uh, this is where the difference is that you, that says where human beings are not uh, artificial intelligence. We have uh, minds that God gives us so that we can retain facts. Two and two is four, H2O is water. Uh, but the question is what we do with those uh, facts. And that's what's important. And so the same thing, contextualization has been something that we've had to, the church has had to wrestle with through all of its history in terms of how does it address the um, the gospel and how do we live in this uh, broken down sinful world that we live in? So the uh, title by Michael Clary is the Trojan Horse of Leftist Propaganda. And so it's not only that which we face in culture, but also within the life of the church. And uh, how do we speak uh, to this? So he sets it up this way. I've been a full-time ministry for over 20 years. I spent the first five years in collegiate ministry with crew that used to be known as Campus Crusade which seemed to be on the cutting edge of evangelistic innovation. And this is where I first learned about contextualization, the art of adapting the gospel message to the specific audience. A, I spent the next 15 years planting and pastoring a new church in Cincinnati, Ohio. During this time, I learned the concept of incarnational ministry, uh, where you immerse yourself in your target culture to, quote, become Jesus to them learning their stories and speaking their language to communicate the gospel more effectively to them. So he starts out with that as lays the groundwork of what uh, context and mission. This is a missiological word that's used a lot. It's no matter where we go, we find that context is important in terms of just how we coexist in a new location where we weren't living before, what words carry and uh, the meaning and so forth. So the importance of words, and this is a lengthy article, so we can't uh, highlight it all, but he says words are important because God speaks to us in words. God created the universe with words. The Ten Commandments were revealed with words. Jesus Christ himself is called the Word. John's Gospel begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Salvation is communicated with words. The Bible's use of the word word isn't incidental. God's words have power to create reality. Humans think with words. Words are the building block of uh, theology. Therefore, manipulating words to distort truth is a serious issue because it is an attempt to tinker with reality. And if you look back, uh, Paul, to Genesis 3, this is exactly what the serpent was doing and trying to say, did God really say? In other words, God spoke. Uh, he gave commands: uh, "Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge, of, uh, fruit of the knowledge, tree of the knowledge of good and evil." And did then the long comes Satan uh, is the great the deconstructionist and say, "Did God really say?" So uh, the, the con he was changing the context there. Uh, so that finally Eve looked at what the serpent was saying and saw, oh, this uh, fruit looks, it's a delight to the eyes and it's probably great to eat. And so she had to go through that deconstruction in her mind uh, because she bought into the words that Satan spoke. So it's it's an important uh, kind of thing. So it, it gets into ministry, uh, how we do uh, preaching as well as our mission work, our evangelism. And so it's a long, like I said, a long article, but this is really worth your time uh, to understand contextualization in a biblical way. So we end here. Uh, what we need is not new techniques, but simple courage. 
in the uh, screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis wrote that courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point. Yesterday's battles had their own heroes, but it's not uh, cur uh, courageous to fight yesterday's battles. We need courage for today's battles. Uh, greater courage of this sort would solve many problems in modern Christianity. The world will hate us for the one thing or another. We might as well be hated for speaking the truth. There, of course, is words. Uh, that is what is needed in our day. The kind of bold, courageous Christianity that isn't obsessed with what the world thinks of us so we can land uh, coveted uh, publishing uh, space uh, with secular legacy media. No, there's power in the plain spoken word of scripture. So Paul, really well said. I like it. Yeah, and I like the, ar the, the arguments here, uh, breaking it down, the tactics of propaganda. Then you borrow social capital and you attach that propaganda to something that's socially relevant. And then you appeal to emotions. And this I like rather than focusing on logic, reasoning and rational thought, propaganda focuses on emotions that can be subtly embedded in one's unconscious mind. Bible believing Christians who are committed to objective truth can naively assume that others do, too. While we make appeals to texts of scripture, texts of law, rational arguments and truth claims, the propagandists are telling stories and stories have the power to shape our values and desires. Anyway, really Really good stuff. If you want insight in, in how all of this is breaking down and the, the forces that are, you know, running running the world right now. So exactly. Well, then the last article, number ten, uh, by uh, our friend Tom Hervey. Uh, Thoughts on the church's true nature and mission. A partial rejoinder to Larry Ball's challenge to the spirituality of the church. And so he says, the spiritual of the church is an inferred doctrine that arises from various aspects of the church's nature role and relations, and in many cases is best discussed at length. So he gives this um, rather brief, you know, so it's not a lengthy discussion, but he does nonetheless uh, give it. Uh, the church has a definite purpose to accomplish, which her Lord has provided with her the authority, the gifts, and powers to achieve. It is her business to make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. This will often result in great social, economic, and political consequences, yet the church's purpose is not to seek sociopolitical reform as such, uh, but to reconcile men to God so that being in the right relation to him, they may in turn stand in the right relation to their fellow men. Uh, Paul, you know, the, this article, as Tom Hervey goes uh, through, basically gives us um, uh, one of those points of battle that the church has wrestled with from the beginning. How do we, what is the purpose of the church? What is its uh, mission? How does it engage itself? How does it engage culture? Uh, what are the parameters and the powers that, that God has given to it? And uh, that's part of the reason we have all the desktop of the, some of the earlier articles uh, that we have already gone through uh, this morning. And so um, it's just a very helpful article that Tom uh, Hervey has uh, given to us to sort of expand our horizons, um, you know, to, uh, you know, to understand what uh, God is uh, doing and, and the what is he given to the church? So really commend this one. This one will take time for you all to go through as you read it, ponder it, and discuss it with others. So commend yeah, it highly. Really yeah, and, and he says when the church gives itself to these other affairs, uh, it, it's to transgress the proper bounds of its task and to risk being weighed down with the affairs of this life. Right. Uh, and, that's really good. And, and I think what you're referring to in that same area is, again, I'll re I read this earlier, but this one again, this will result, that is doing the work of uh, missions, of evangelism, of, of uh, uh, teaching, baptizing, I mean, uh, going, baptizing, teaching as part of the Great Commission. This will result often, as we have evidence in scripture, uh, in, in great social, economic, uh, political consequences uh, that will have effects sociopolitically and so forth, because the gospel just has that spillover effect, but that spillover effect isn't the uh, purpose. It, it is to 
uh, make disciples. And in making disciples, they, as they are working out that discipleship in their um, area of, uh, of uh, practice and, and uh, expertise, uh, are having an effect in culture. But we're not out there laying out principles. The church's job doesn't lay out principles for how we're going to transform culture. That, that's God's business. He gave also the right of the church, I mean, the state to, and the seculars to put that together. So the church has the impact, but it's not distinctly that which Christ has commanded to it. Make disciples, and you do that by going, by teach, baptizing, by teaching. And as we're engaged in the world, it will have an impact. So, all right, well, that brings us to the end of our top 10 list for this uh, day uh, May of uh, June 5, uh, 2023. Tomorrow on the 6th, you will receive your newsletter and you'll be able to read these articles at your leisure. Hopefully, as we say, uh, think them through, uh, save them for later review, uh, you know, engage in conversation, uh, stretch your horizon, your mind. Uh, in terms of these things that are uh, been put before us and uh, trust it will be helpful uh, to us. So thank you for being a part of this and uh, for Paul Harrell and Dominic Aquila, we thank you for uh, your regular listening, your regular reading of the Aquila Report and uh, we trust the Lord will continue to watch over you and direct your steps.